Bad theology can kill. Our best theology does not win us divine favor. Once upon a time, there was a, a monk, we'll say he was of the uh, Carmelite order, who was comparing the various Roman Catholic monastic orders, noting their particular strengths and their weaknesses. And he said that those of the Dominican order, in fact, were better preachers than his order. He admitted to that. And he allowed that the Jesuits had a greater intellectual accomplishments really than any other monastic order. But he concluded proudly, nobody, absolutely nobody can beat us in humility. Yeah, you get it. Um, at first glance, it might feel like Paul is full-on humble bragging in this Philippians passage. Uh, he's saying essentially in this corrupt culture where the focus is all on status and accumulation and, and power, where your desire for the way you want things to go becomes your lodestar, when your God is your belly is the way Paul puts it. Just follow my example. Wow, when I read that, I want to say, you know, how many of you would hold yourselves up to be the role model of Christian discipleship in the Christian life? I mean, really, go ahead, throw your hand up in the air. Uh, I'll tell you that recently someone indicated to me that they don't think I uh, live out the gospel that I preach from here. To which I will say, you could scarcely find something that I agree with more. I mean, this gospel is where I put my hope, not in my own ability to live it out in this world. You should know that. I'll ask you again. Raise your hand if you would hold yourself up to be the example of Christian life and living in this world. Well, it kind of reminds us of the Pharisee we'll meet a little bit later in Luke's Gospel who prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other peoples, thieves and rogues and adulterers, or even this tax collector. The tax collector, on the other hand, in the familiar passage, could not even bring himself to look up into the heavens to pray. But he was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to a sinner. And as annoying as the religious guy's prayer certainly is, we should be reminded that Pharisees are considered people who are trying to take their religion seriously. They'd have raised their hand when I asked that question here this morning. 
They were honest to a fault. They were dependable. Pharisees were upstanding. Pharisees were responsible and accountable. They served on the committees. They went to board meetings. They taught Sunday school. They, they kept their lawns looking nice. They picked up after their dogs. They drove the speed limit. They ran the PTA. They served on church council. You know, Paul had just gotten done saying about himself earlier in this same chapter, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You know, he's talking about his own credentials. I was circumcised on the eighth day, as our religion prescribes. I, I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then Paul caps it off with this, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. One of the problems that I have with what I will call the Pharisaic, uh, Pharisaic mindset and the modern-day equivalents of which there are many is the tendency to have a complete dependency on, on a system of being made righteous, of, of being good in this world. The Pharisee who prayed that prayer congratulating himself and condemning the tax collector, he trusted in his own tradition, in the institution, in system, in heritage, in rules, and in himself. He trusted in these things so thoroughly that he really had no need for the, for the grace of God. He was simply in this prayer reporting in, here's what we've been doing, here's how well it's been going, how well I am doing. The tax collector, on the other hand, had broken whatever rules he even kept for himself. He had no heritage to fall back on. He had no system. He had no institution. He had no tradition. In his spiritual brokenness, he had to trust in the only thing he could reach for, the grace and the mercy of God. Now, Paul had come to realize this truth in a profound and personal way. All of his status, his education that he, had, that he had listed, his titles, they had come to mean nothing compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. All of the focus on the proper way things should be done for Paul had crumbled. And Paul puts it like this in this same chapter. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, it's worth pointing out, and we do it each time this passage rolls around, that translators simply chickened out when they use the English words trash or rubbish for the Greek word that Paul uses here in this passage. In fact, it is the only place in the entire New Testament that the word ekubalov, it's in the Greek, it's the only place in the entire New Testament where anyone uses it. So if you're a good Bible student, you're set to do a word study, which is a good thing to do. 
uh, so you can learn how a particular word gets used in different contexts and different places in Scripture helps give you an idea of what that word might mean. Well, if you're doing that on a Kublov, you're done. This is it. It's the only place it appears in the whole New Testament. And that may well be because of the primary definition of the word, which is to refer to human excrement. Paul is saying that all of his, his credentials that he listed there and accomplishments and religious status, is, uh, status as a Pharisee, all of it, compared to the grace of God in Christ, it's all a big pile of crap. And even that, my friends, is a euphemism. Our best theology... Let me say it this way. Bad theology can kill. Literally kill. Bad theology can kill. Our best theology does not win us divine favor. Our finely tuned ethical systems do not earn us God. Our beloved political ideologies cannot contain God. Our Heritage and beloved traditions, Lutheran or otherwise, do not make us righteous. We're not, all, we're not saying that all of these things are necessarily bad at all. We are saying that none of them can define us, or anybody else for that matter. Our hope is here in these waters. Our hope is in the gracious claim on our lives in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul wants us to imitate. Oddly enough, people find this threatening. It's threatening because it undercuts the distinctions we make between different kinds of people. It's threatening because it shatters our systems of of classifying people. It's threatening because it seems to take all of my efforts to establish my credentials and set them aside. Uh, hey, I, I'm a lifelong member of the church. I've always been a generous person. I, I know the Apostles' Creed by heart. I read my Bible, whatever it is. Paul is saying that our hope rests in none of these. We, can learn, we can't learn our way into the kingdom. We can't earn our way into the kingdom. We can't buy our way into the kingdom or consume our way into the kingdom. And those who believe they have no need of God's grace and mercy, Paul says, their God is their belly and their glory is their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. I should know, Paul says. I was one of them. There's a story by Flannery O'Connor called Revelation. O'Connor wrote about Mrs. Turpin, a woman who has neatly divided all people of her little town into classes. Her system of Classifying people is grossly offensive, of course, but the honest reader of the story is forced to recognize that all of us operate with a little hint of Mrs. Turpin's system. Ours may be more subtle or politically correct, of course, but 
There's a shadow of Mrs. Turpin's world of relative virtue in most of us, at least. We may barely know we're doing it, but we place people a little more up or a little more down, a little more in or a little more out, even an inch closer to God or an inch further away. At the end of the story, Mrs. Turpin gets angry after feeling slighted, and she yells that it's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to, and break my back to the bone every day working, and do for the church. And finally, her rage burns itself into a strange vision of a mystical march toward heaven, Flannery O'Connor describes it like this. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward through the earth, through a living field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives and bands of blacks in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet, she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. But our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes for us this morning. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may become conformed to the body of his glory. Man, if that isn't someplace to place your hope, rather than on your own status or credentials or right living. Listen as Austin is baptized here in a moment. In holy baptism, our gracious Heavenly Father liberates us from sin and death by joining us to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that is God's action, not ours. We didn't earn it or learn it or buy it. The last will and testament was read and your inheritance has been given and declared. Whether you live or whether you die in this world or the next, you are the Lord. You belong to the Lord, a child of God. If you've known me for a decade or the first time you've seen my face is right now, this gospel's for you. 
and it is the only place we put our hope. Amen. So we thank uh, Austin for the reminder of this joyful promise made in the waters of baptism and the joyful way that he received them. He looked like he wanted to go again here. Um, I, I once did a baptism for a four-year-old who right as the moment arrived and we had rehearsed and talked about it and mom, everybody was right there. She ran away screaming. So <laughs> I guess it's a good metaphor. Either way the blessing comes either way it's not about how we receive it it's about a god determined to give it and so have we been blessed and claimed and forgiven this morning so that we might go in peace to love and serve the lord thanks be to god